an in-depth history lesson on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. This episode is brought to you by Funwise Capital. Funwise Capital is a business lender matching platform. Avoid the mystery of one-sided deals and connect with Funwise to get the very best funding you can qualify for fast. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. It's easy. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. You did hear me correctly. I did say start or grow your business. If you don't have a business yet, but you got a solid business plan, they can help you get funding. Get the best funding you can qualify for. Their strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They have hundreds of five-star reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and Facebook, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months. Unsecured term loans, loans based on income, short-term gap funding, and bridge loans. They work with real estate, startups like I already mentioned, franchises, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of project. To get started, it's really easy. Just go to apply.funwise.com slash minddog. That's apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Get money for your business now. Fly.funwise.com slash mind dog. Is everybody ready for the mind dog to make it to the show? Well, technical glitches and all, welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. Somebody forgot to push a button around here. I think it was me. Anyway, welcome to the program. Uh, much needed uh, break from the stuff we've been talking about, which is, for the last couple of shows, has been very much, uh, and I guess we are still somewhat uh, going to be talking about race. Obviously, we're going to be talking about slave ships today and a a mutiny and a murder and a part of history that I'm sure you slept through. Uh, if it, if we were taught about this at all in school, uh, I feel like I slept through this day at, in history class. And so I'm going to seem very uh, uneducated in this conversation, and I'm just uh, putting that out there for you. Uh, you know, people, a lot of people call themselves history buffs, and I'm in that um, in that group that call calls themselves history buffs. But too many people confuse the History Channel <laughs> with being really interested in history. This is real history, folks. It's not ancient aliens. It's not uh, finding Hitler uh, or any of the conspiracy stuff and and nonsense you'll see on what cable television. Uh, will tell you his history. This is real history. Uh, Jared Ross Hardesty is an associate professor of history at Western Washington University and a scholar of colonial America, the Atlantic world, and the histories of uh, labor and slavery. He's here today uh, to talk about his book, and I'm still pushing wrong buttons, folks, uh, right here. It's called The Mutiny on the Rising Sun. Uh, Eric Burden would be happy with that. Uh, title mutiny on the rising sun there is a ship <laughs> not in new orleans they call the rising sun anyway maybe there's some uh some relationship there anyway uh jared uh ross hardesty is here to talk about that book right now ladies and gentlemen please open your ears open your minds and help me welcome in jared ross hardesty to the mind of tv podcast welcome Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. It's my pleasure to have have you here. I think, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, a lot of people uh, claim to be interested in history, but this is like deep. Uh, this is this is inside baseball history. Uh, so, uh, and it's a very interesting subject. Now, why, 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 why are you compelled to tell this story at this time? This was this is interesting because um, the. I wasn't, uh, in fact, uh, compelled to it. I was—I rather stumbled across it. Would be the way to to kind of describe the the origins of, of this project. Um, I was doing some some work uh, with the Old North Church and Historic Site in Boston, um, which is famous for Paul Revere's, 
Paul Revere's ride. Um, you've probably all heard the Longfellow poem, the one if by land, two if by sea, uh, to warn him of the, the lanterns uh, and his midnight ride to warn the British soldiers were marching out the next morning, uh, which happened to be the, the battles of Lexington and Concord that started the American Revolution. So those lanterns were hung in the Ordinary Church, and ever since it's become this kind of shrine of liberty in a place uh, to interpret uh, early American history, especially in Boston, Massachusetts. And so I was doing some work for them um, because they opened a historic chocolate shop and they, if we could talk about that more, uh, what that means uh, and what that was. Uh, and uh, they named it after a parishioner at the church uh, by the name of Newark Jackson. Um, and they didn't know much about him. And we started to kind of dig through the records and look around through the archives and found that he, in fact, was murdered in a mutiny in March of 1743. Or, I'm sorry, in June of 1743. And I, and I found this to be such a fascinating story. I decided I had to dig a little bit deeper. And what it ended up opening up was this, this story of an international smuggling ring um, that, that mostly smuggled cacao out of a colony called Suriname, which is in South America, um, on the northeast coast of South America. It's a modern-day nation state of Suriname. Um, and so they would, they would take cacao from Suriname, uh, but when they went to Suriname, they would take um, things from from New, uh, from New England, from Boston, so like saltfish and timber and agricultural goods. Uh, but they also would stop in the West Indies, uh, in Barbados, uh, mostly the island of Barbados, where they would purchase captive Africans and take them to Suriname to exchange for the cacao. So it's just like so the story kind of started to spiral out of control the more we dug into this man and and, and what had happened to him. Um, the whole lot you just said there. Now, uh, first of all, when we think of smuggling uh, in modern times, we think of contraband or things that are illegal. Uh, it it seems to me like the smuggling was a stolen good, but not illegal goods or contraband. Am I, uh, I correct in that? Because I think it's an important distinction to make as comparing it to what we consider smuggling in today. We're talking about piracy, theft, and then, right? No, actually, it's oh. it, um, it's very different. So smuggling is very different from 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 piracy. Um, although some smugglers were pirates and vice versa. Um, what's interesting is that it has to do with the way in which um, the economies functioned in this time period, especially in the in the uh, American colonies and what became the United States and what became the kind of independent nations of South America and the West Indies. Um, the European powers that colonized them: Great Britain, France. Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands, they Im imposed really restrictive trade uh, laws on these colonies. The idea is that they would extract raw materials and commodities, so timber, fish, sugar, tobacco, things like that. Those would go to the mother country, and then the mother country would sell them manufactured goods to create essentially a, a built-in market. And so what that meant is these trade laws prevented them from trading outside of the empire, especially in the, for the colonists. So if you lived in Boston, Massachusetts, for example, it was illegal in the 16 and 1700s to trade uh, with the French Canada, with the, the French islands in the West Indies, because they were outside the empire. So what this does is it, it dramatically expands the definition of smuggling away from kind of our ideas of like, we think about illegal drugs and, and things like that's how, and guns and things like that today, to literally everyday items like sugar or molasses or coffee or chocolate, um, because in a place like Boston, you can't grow that stuff. Um, and you can buy it from Great Britain or you can buy it from the British West Indies, but it's much more expensive than say the way the French or the Dutch are, are, are producing it. So it makes a lot of sense in this world to conduct trade illegally. Um, and, uh, and there's very little enforcement of it. Uh, it's really hard. I mean, ships, you know, the fastest ships in the 18th century move something like 15 to 20 miles an hour. So it's really hard to police this um, and easy to evade these laws, even if they look really restrictive on paper. Um, right. So smuggling is this, is this it's like it, it's everywhere. Um, and you can't, everybody dabbles in it either as a, they either trade illegally or they, 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 they buy, you know, what we would, what would be considered contraband, legally speaking. Um, and so it's a much broader definition than, than I think what we're used to uh, thinking about smuggling today. Gotcha. 
Well, thanks for clearing that up. And I'm, uh, as I mentioned in the, in the uh, beginning, I'm sure I'm not the only one who, in high school, slept through this, <laughs> this portion of the lecture. <laughs> um, well, this, this is the, this is funny because you know it, it, we we talk about smuggling. Historians have talked about smuggling for a really long time. I'm sure it was in your high school curriculum, especially about coming the coming of the American Revolution, right? That uh, one of the, the the friction points between the American colonists and Great Britain was that the Americans smuggled. They were you know the ultimate smugglers. They're everything they would buy outside these trade laws. Um, the thing is, though, that, that you're, you're exactly right. The, the, the way in which that history was told would put people to sleep. It would, you know, it, it's about the policies that people design, like the laws that were passed or how much of this commodity, you know, was bought and sold and traded illegally, rather than asking questions like, how does this affect the lives of the people living in a world where smuggling's ever present? Everybody's buying and selling and dealing in contraband. Yeah, that's the, that's the the human part of it is the interesting thing. Now, am I jumping the shark to go ahead and ask how common this is in the slave trade? And because we're talking about a slave boat here, if I if I'm I have this right, and so how how common was it for slave boats to have this dual purpose of also being a smuggling boat for well, I'm going to call it contraband, even though it's not drugs and stuff. It's um, stuff that's not supposed to be sold outside the empire. So it's contraband in that sense. So how often were slave boats corrupted or, or used for this dual purpose? Uh, I want to say corrupted slave boats. Oh, man. It's Tuesday <laughs> afternoon. I need help. But you, you get the idea of the question yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I mean, it is. It's a, it's a weird thing to talk about corruption within something like the slave trade, um, because there there is a legal slave trade in this type period. So of right. that opens the door to, to corruption. Um, so it is a very awkward, you know, weird talking point. But you're right. Um, it is fairly extensive. Um, and all of it, so we, we have to separate the slave trade out. There's many different slave trades that we can talk about. Um, some which are legal, others which are illegal under these trade laws. And so the, the, I think the slave trade most people think about is the transatlantic slave trade, where, where European ships or North American ships went to West Africa, purchased captives, and took them across the Atlantic. Um, what's happening in, in the mutiny we discovered uh, that, that we kind of uncovered here, and, and, I, and I write about in the book, is it's what we would call the inter-American slave trade. So it's slave trading within the American colonies, so between colonies. And this one's illegal because it, it the, this voyage in particular, because it took captives from a British colony of Barbados to the Dutch colony of Suriname. And so that, that in its very essence is illegal. Um, but they also carry all types of other stuff that they're not supposed to be selling there. So, so alongside the enslaved people that are contraband, is also all this other stuff that's contraband, like cloth and tools and things like that that they're selling. And for the smuggling ring as a whole, there's quite a bit of that. I mean, there's there's such a such an overlap of these ships, uh, you know, illegally slave trading alongside illegally uh, dealing in other types of contraband as well. And and it's also illegal for them under the Dutch laws to take cacao out of Suriname. And so the, when they're buying cacao and putting it on the ships, that's also technically illegal, but they're doing it anyways. So the whole thing is built around uh, kind of evading these restrictive trade laws. Yeah. You can't separate uh, the two. Well, you know, it, it, human nature, I guess, to corrupt everything that we touch. <laughs> but uh, we, and on that note, this morning on uh, on the, the morning program, I, a friend of mine called in and we were talking about uh lying liars and the, the lying lies these liars tell uh <laughs> and uh, it's hard to know the truth in today's uh world and earlier you were talking about the past that led you to this research but the question has to be um these are criminals so they're liars to begin with lying liars and the lies they tell about and so i'm sure they weren't writing this stuff down and so the research for this how do you know you're right and and how difficult is the research to do on something like this because it's got to be convoluted and covered up in in, in a lot of murky lies no yeah absolutely you know one of the what i go back to what i mentioned earlier right the reason that when we talk about smuggling which should be so exciting uh, it puts us to sleep um is because i like the volume of smuggling the laws passed to try to prohibit smuggling and things like that that's really easy to get out in the records and so that's where you know historians have focused their attention how people live in a world of smuggling is much harder because you're, you're right. This is illegal. No one wants to write this stuff down. Um, you know, you might see an account book notation, notation, you know, the arrival of a ship that you know has been smuggling in a port, a record like that. But like kind of an open narrative that's discussing the people involved, that's really hard to get at in the records. 
And that's what you know makes this uh, this so unique. Uh, this this book and the, and the mutiny it's centered around because that's exactly what the mutiny did. Is that be, because the, uh, the the couple of the mutineers are put on trial because the uh, authorities in Suriname have to figure out what to do with the ship and its cargo. All of a sudden, people are writing about this and writing about what's happening. Um, this is what historians have a they call it a contingency, right? It's something we uh, we didn't know would happen, uh, but but it could have happened. And when it did happen, it creates this huge record for us to to kind of dig into and look at. And so, yeah, there's um, the thing is though you 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 also touch on the the other issue is that yeah we have all these records now, but we also have really a hard and difficult time confirming what is true, what is not. Um, especially you know like I said, two of the mutineers are put on trial, and their testimony actually con they're contradicting each other. Right, because they're both trying to save their own skins, um, and so this is a this is a really difficult part of uh, of writing the book. Was how do I kind of identify what information to use, uh, and and where can I follow that information? So there's a there's a there's a little bit there's a few things you can do. The first is if you find multiple account like multiple facts confirmed in different places, that that probably happens. And so there's a lot of that like confirming and corroborating, especially around the mutiny and what happened during the mutiny. Uh, what when the testimony lines up and when it doesn't is a, is, is is pretty clear. Um, the other thing uh, you do is that you can engage in a bit of kind of uh, informed speculation. Um, you know, we we know a lot about this world from the work of other historians, and and so I read a lot of people who who've written about Suriname and written about Boston, and and I and my, myself and, and earlier work have, have done all that is some of that as well. Uh, and so to rely on that kind of scholarship. Um, that creates a context then for also confirming facts and kind of speculating, okay, we don't have a clear picture here, but it suggests um, that this probably happened and it probably worked this way uh, based on all these other facts that are going on. Um, that said, there's just certain things the documents don't let you know, and, and incredibly frustrating, very basic details, right? So I can tell you, Newark Jackson, the captain of the Rising Sun, um, who died during the mutiny, I can tell you in very graphic, gruesome detail how he died. I mean, <laughs> step by step, uh, oh. down to like how deep, <laughs> how, how deep the stab wounds were. I mean, I, I can tell you that. What I can't tell you, I can't tell you where he was born, and I can't tell you how old he was when he died. So I, th this is the problem with the way in which the, the record that is created, the, 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 as I kind, of, I kind of describe it like, you know, if we think about smuggling as a window, right, it's something that, that contemporaries shut and did it deliberately to, they don't want anyone looking in. These records open that window, but they only, they open it a little bit and only in a certain way. So you can only see, you know, through a certain perspective. Um, and, and it really makes, and so there, like I said, there's sometimes really basic facts that are hard to uncover, and I just don't know. Even even now with a published book, and much to my frustration, I can't answer basic questions in some way. Uh, so many questions on that answer. I mean, there was so much that my mind was was. Oh, jump on that! Oh, jump on that! Oh, jump on that! Uh, let's start with first of all. It, he was uh, the the trial was in Sur Suriname, or was it? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that that's uh, all the way around the world now, and we, we have to kind of. Uh, dig through court records from there, and I'm, I'm, I'm imagining the court reporting was not uh, <laughs> what we what we know as court reporting today. So there's that part of it, uh, but I can't get the, the 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 most important thing. No, not the most important thing. One of the most shocking things you said to me was that uh, they could tell how deep the stab wounds were. I worked in pathology in the 20th century and and a little bit into the 21st century. And I know what the state of pathology is now, and I know what the state of medicine was in the 18th century. And, <laughs> and um, unless forensics were way ahead of actual care medicine, <laughs> how, how, I mean, uh, I can't imagine how you know how deep the stab wounds were. Uh, can, uh, clue me in. Yeah, so I'll start with the first question about the, the kind of mutineers are being put on trial. There's all sorts of issues with this, right? So the Dutch did, so these are, it's a Dutch colony, and, and every and every empire has different record-keeping practices. In the Dutch empire, they, they follow what's called the civil law or the Roman law, um, and which is continental European law, essentially. Um, and so they they believe in kind of questioning and answering. So really, the, what we have from the mutineers is them being questioned in their answers to those questions. So it can be pretty thorough. There's just a couple problems. 
So there are actually a lot of problems with this record keeping. The first is, as I already mentioned, that we have two mutineers and they contradict each other. The, the second is that the, the way in which the court system worked back then, especially in the, in the Dutch Empire and, and even in the British Empire to a lesser extent, there was no real concern. Like they were not assumed to be innocent in any way. There's a, there's a presumption of guilt. So these questions are really aimed at extracting a confession that they that they actually did this crime and now they can be punished for the crime. Um, and so there's so that what that means is it's really hard to find motive. Like, why did they mutiny? That, that's that's a big question. And I speculate a bit in the book as to why. Um, the other thing is that these men are described in the documents as Portuguese. Um, and although they're they're not all Portuguese, two of them are one of them is Italian, actually. They all speak Portuguese. So they're they're speaking through a translator who they're speaking Portuguese to a translator who's then having to translate to Dutch and the clerk's writing it down as fast as possible. So you can see there's going to be errors, there's going to be problems in in keeping those records. So so we have a, a picture, but once again, what's being left out, what's not being written, and there's a there's a number of kind of tantalizing clues in those testimony that it's really hard to get any information beyond that. Answer your question, the second question about pathology. Um, I, I, it seems what's happening is I, I, there's no scientific, like what we would identify as scientific, right? Like, right. no coroner what, testified. <laughs> no, there's no coroner. There are coroners, but there, no, it's no coroner testified in this case. Okay. Essentially, it was a tactic that the Dutch judicial authorities are using to corroborate evidence. Um, so, you know, the, the surviving crew says, oh, Newark, Newark Jackson was stabbed nine times and one of those stab wounds was, you know, three inches deep or something like that. They, they can't recall the exact measure. What they do is then when they're questioning the mutineers, they say, well, how deep was the wound? Um, just to see, and then essentially they're probing and they're testing, you know, what's truthful, what's not. They're trying, they're aiming for a confession. Um, under the idea that, you know, if someone actually stabbed Jackson, they would have a sense of how deep it was versus someone who's denying it. Well, yeah, they're leading questions, essentially. Right. I get it. Now, uh, if this is something I think, I, I'm no, I don't think I have to, I can say I know for a fact that most Americans uh, take for granted is this idea of a trial where presumed guilt uh, or presumed innocence. And now you're talking about presumed guilt and the, uh, uh, the idea of a trial or a hearing or any of this stuff is to extort a uh, confession. How, how successful was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, they, one, one man, one of the two readily confessed. He, uh, he answered all their questions um, and they, they get to the end and essentially they, they ask him, you know, do you, do you feel bad for what you did? Uh, he's effectively confessed by like after the seventy seven, and he essentially says, his answer is pretty amazing because he essentially says, uh, it doesn't matter what I say, you're going to execute me anyways. That's <laughs> kind of what he said of at the end. The other mutineer refused to answer a number of the questions. So there were 77 or 78 questions. He refused to answer over 40 of them. Um, and we're not sure what happened. Uh, I, I speculate in a bit of the book, but he's taken um, aside. He's, he, and a couple of things that we know happened. The first is he sat with the other mutineer and forced to corroborate stories. Something else happens. And then they mention in the Dutch records that they got the confessions, right? So plural. We know they had the one, but then he gets, they, they say in the records confessions too. So I speculate in the book, there is a possibility, and, and the Dutch did this in the 18th through, they're the, one of the last European countries to do this, is there, there's a potential that he was tortured to get that confession. Um, and, and so, you know, torture still used increasingly rarely, uh, in the, even in the Netherlands where it's most common, it's, it's used to extract confession. So there is a potential to get that, to go from confession to confessions that some sort of torture was used, perhaps the threat of torture, um, but something happened that he did ultimately confess. Mm. Uh, it's just, I, I'm thinking of how this kind of um, reflects the success of the court system of the time in, in general, as far as that goes, because I'm sure, I mean, there are people who confess who are, uh, and, we, and we see this even in the, the system that we have, where you're presumed innocent, people who wrongly confess, and then there are people who are guilty who will never confess no matter what. But it just strikes me that this guy was confessed, but was still holding back information, and I'm wondering, uh, you know, 
not only am I wondering what the, those questions might have looked like, but why? Why would somebody uh, does that? Do you have any insight into that? I, I think he was the ringleader, and I, I speculate about this in the book. Um, he seems to be the one who planned it all, um, and it, it's pretty. The, the questions that he's skipping are the ones kind of about planning the mutiny, about who struck first, about who you targeted, and and, and when you targeted them, and why you targeted them uh, in that moment. Um, and, and those are the questions he's refusing to answer. Um, and and to, to me, he's, his name's Thomas Lucas, and he's, he's the one who's actually Italian, not Portuguese. He's also mixed race, uh, which is, uh, uh, he was, his mother was enslaved, um, um, and that he was, he was, his father was white. Um, and so, he, then he was freed later, and he became a sailor. He went to sea when he was like 10 years old. And so, it, it seems, he's about mid-30s, um, which, is, which is starting to get very old for a sailor in this time period. Sailing's hard work. Um, and all of a sudden he finds himself on board a ship as it's leaving Suriname that's full of very valuable stuff, sugar and coffee and cacao. And uh, you could you can start to understand his thought process that perhaps if he can get a couple of the other crew members on board, he could, you know, have a take this ship and go sell the goods elsewhere and make a and kind of retire, make a life for himself on land uh, at, with these proceeds. And so I, I think, the reason he's not answering those questions is because it will very much implicate him as the ringleader, um, despite the fact that they were both going to be executed. Perhaps this was an attempt, or at least early in the questioning, to save himself uh, from being implicated as as the kind of mastermind behind the movie. Right. So the, I'm I'm assuming here by the the way you you said and by the way he answered that, well, you're going to execute me anyway. That mm -hmm. plea deals were not were not. It didn't matter whether you confessed. You couldn't get leniency if you confessed in a court at at this time in, in history. <laughs> yeah, you could. And not in this case, it's not going to happen because what's what's also weighing against um, these two men is that there's four other crew members who survived, including the mate of the vessel, the bosun, the, bo the bosun of the vessel, and two sailors who survived and have all offered their testimony against these men. So that's um, a pretty small crew though, that you're describing. I, Cause I want, when, when we think of these ships and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm the only one who has this idea, but if I think of a slave ship, I'm thinking probably 20, 30 men easy. It sounds like you're describing less than 10 men, a uh, complete, complete crew for captain down to the mm -hmm. to the lowest mate, right? Yeah, there, so there were 11 on board the Rising Sun at the, at the time of the mutiny. Um, now, and this is the difference, like a transatlantic slaver, absolutely, they're massive ships, sometimes upwards of six, 700 tons, and that's the, how much cargo they can hold. Um, and sometimes, you know, 40, 50, 60 crew members, right? So they can be quite large. Okay. Um, Inter-American vessels, like the Rising Sun, the Rising Sun is probably about, 60 to 70 tons. Um, it, it's a schooner, um, which is uh, it's a little bit faster. Uh, it's designed um, for trade, uh, more limited trade than, say, a big transatlantic vessel. Um, it's also very fast, so it's good for evading you know, customs authorities and things like that in, in the context of smuggling. Um, so it's a little bit of a smaller vessel, so it doesn't need as large of a crew. And actually, so one of the interesting questions I had when I, when I approached this is that um, there were 11 men on board. And really, a, a ship like that only needed a crew of about six to seven or so. Why are there actually so many um, on board? And, and wow. including the, the three, there were three mutineers, the three men who mutinied were hired in Barbados. And it seems they were the, the Portuguese men, um, quote unquote. Um, and they seem to have been hired because they had experience in the slave trade um, and could manage enslaved people on board the ship. So they were brought on for this kind of specialty task. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be pressed to why didn't you ask if I don't ask this? Uh, because I have friends who, <laughs> who want to know. Um, two, two Portuguese guys and an Italian guy. Um, the ringleader guy, the Italian guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the mob, the mob boss is the Italian guy. Now. Uh, and this, uh, we'll get right back to this story, but because uh, I'm confused by this, Columbus Day passed about a month ago, mm -hmm. and uh, we were talking about Columbus. Actually, I believe his parents spoke Portuguese, and this is and this is where the confusion comes in. The and Italy wasn't the Italy we know today as a nation mm -hmm. wasn't Italy at, in, at this point in time, correct? Uh, so uh, I'm wondering, uh, there was a kind of. Um, 
confusion as to you know who was really part of Italy and mm-hmm. and and all that kind of, and and Portugal at the time. Now, where I'm going with this is in today's world, if we see an inter- international incident, we tend to think. Uh, to blame the country of origin of those people uh, who were involved in the international incident, the crime, and blame them. And somehow uh, wars can start over that or certainly diplomatic uncomfortableness. Uh, Was there any of that, like when this, when these kind of things were discovered, would uh, Portugal be on the hook for any of this kind of stuff? Would what we know is Italy be on the hook for any of this kind of stuff? No, not really. These men seem to be relatively alienated from their home country. Like so mercenaries? They're, well, they're kind of sailors for hire, right? Uh, like, so yeah. Thomas Lucas talks about, yeah, essentially. Um, <laughs> this is, so Thomas Lucas talks about, he'd been at sea since he was about, you know, 10 or 12 years old. So we're talking 20 plus years of his life. He mentions in his testimony, he hasn't been back. He's from the outside of Venice. He hadn't been back to that in, in more than a decade. Um, and so, you know, how much and he, he's, he's working with and the, the people he's close with are, are Portuguese speakers. So he's speaking Portuguese. Ever. I mean, the, the English crew uh, never realized that he was anything but Portuguese. They thought he was just a, a Lucifer, a Portuguese speaker. Um, the Dutch don't discover it until they actually question him that he is, you know, he's from Venice, not from, Port- from Portugal or one of its colonies. Right. So the, the real kind of uh, there's there's not a whole lot of fallout because this is a world where um, they're, 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 they are themselves kind of alienated from their home countries, but it's also a world where um, sailors drift all around looking for work um, from, and they're, and especially these men who seem to have skills in the slave trade, that's a skill that's really in demand in this, in, in, in this world where so much production relies upon slave labor and, and the slave trade. Um, that these men are, you know, they're, they're, they have an, a skill set. And so they're going to be hired. And so they were probably working on British slave, like transatlantic slave ships before being hired to work on the rising sun. Um, have they, they probably hadn't worked on a Portuguese or a, Italian vessel for, for years by this point. Right. And today's world, the, the, what you brought up is um, the fact that there shouldn't have been a crew that big and there was a crew that big would cause a conspiracy theory to, to bloom out of something like that. Um, is there any of that around this? Like something seems amiss. They shouldn't have had that many people. How, was somebody, was this somehow an inside job? Was the first mate somehow involved? You know, any of that? I, I don't see much of that in the documents. One, one of the mutineers tries to rope the bosun of the ship in on the conspiracy. Um, and it's, it's pretty clear that's not the case, but it was, it, it was there. For me as the historian looking at this, though, I, there, all of those sorts of conspiracy theories are running through my mind. Because, um, you know, the, it's, this isn't a moment. This happens, like I said, June 1743. This smuggling ring, that, it, that this, is the, this is the final voyage of the smuggling ring. Um, because one of the men who died in the mutiny was one of the organizers of it. Um, the what had been happening over the past few years is a really tense relationship between the men who organized the smuggling ring and the chief organizer, the guy who uh, I call the Godfather. Um, I don't call him that in the book, but I do <laughs> interviews like this. I kind of call him the Godfather of the smuggling ring. Um, who's, who's, a, who's a merchant in Barbados. Um, his name's uh, Gendy Clark. Um, Confusing name. Um, uh, he's from Massachusetts. He moves to Barbados, and he organizes the smuggling ring. And he and he he raises a lot of money for smuggling from London and other places. And he has a falling out with one of the other men who organizes it, whose name's George Ladane, who's from Boston, that kind of Boston area. And Ladane's on board the Rising Sun and is murdered. And so it's it's really hard not to speculate right like like it's just it's coincidental that the moment Ladane's on board one of these ships and he didn't really have any business being on the ship uh, he was retired to land long before this huh was he were they hired to do it I, I as much as like I don't want to think about that and entertain it I I I I think that it's it's really about the mutineers so they're the ones that kind of cultivate that they, they're the ones that decide what to do and how to strike um, but I do talk about some potential conspiracy theories in the Obviously, they, I mean, in today's world, because we've been conditioned to think everything is a conspiracy, mm-hmm. uh, it's hard not to see yeah. when you when you say, "Well, that that crew's too big for that boat." Mm-hmm. Uh, my mind immediately goes, "Well, maybe maybe there's a reason for that." Mm-hmm. Um, I I have to ask you this now because you said the word uh, or, or a derivative of the word speculate several times now. 
So we're going to take a little tangent. We'll come back to the main story. But the I, the process of writing the book, and I've had many authors on uh, on my hundreds and hundreds of interviews now with authors who will write uh, in the genre of speculative uh, history, you know, or, or mm-hmm. historical fiction. And we, I talk about, for me, as somebody who loves these books, it's sometimes difficult to know where that line is. And I often find myself making a fool out of myself because I believe something is a fact when it's speculation. Mm-hmm. Now, in this, this is not speculative fiction. This is not historical fiction. This is, um, this is a historical book where you take do take into account uh, intelligent hypotheses based on the facts and data. How do you make that clear that uh, in in a book like this, that to a guy like me who's just like who loses, I I put my suspension of disbelief, and I'm I'm going to believe every word like you're writing the gospel here. How do you make it clear where you're speculating and not? So much of that's rhetorical, right? So I I try to like say you know, use, use the kind of indicative words, like possibly it seems right. So that type of phrasing to signal to the reader, like, okay, this, this doesn't happen. Um, you know, if this was the case, right. So you're, you're seeing a lot of that in there. The other thing that I do, um, and, and, that, and this is, it, it's, it's totally appropriate to speculate, you know, even in, 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 you don't want to go full fiction, right. But if you ground it in the facts, you, you can do this sort of speculation. But one of the things that's important to do then is to lay out all the possible scenarios, right? So I, I'm, I'm, for example, deeply uncomfortable with, you go back to this idea of the, the motive, right, of, of pinning it on one thing. I have a pretty good idea what I think happened, but I want to make sure the reader knows here's some other possibilities, um, you know, whether it's the conspiracy of the, of the guy who's the head of the ring, whether it's there's a potential fourth mutineer on board the ship that comes out in the testimony, right? So I, and I, and I introduce all of those scenarios and kind of explain them. And, and, and what I do, I, I, I kind of say like, you know, okay, here's what I think is most likely the case. But I lay those out. But I, what I also don't want to do is to, to kind of then force the reader, like, this is wrong because, because I don't know, in fact, if that's wrong. And so what I think, I, I think for me, it's about rhetoric and it's about honesty with your reader. Right? You, you have to be honest with your reader and, and kind of say, like, here's all the possible scenarios. This is what the records are telling us. Here's the one I think is the best uh, option of, of everything that's out there. I appreciate that. And it, 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 it's especially important for guys like me because I do. I will. And so the, the follow up question on this and then we'll get back to the actual meat and potatoes of this story is um, does this because it's becoming more and more popular now, historical fiction. Does that make your job as a history professor uh, more difficult? The fact that so much historical fiction is being put out there and uh, lots of books of misinformation, not necessarily meant to, to confuse people or mislead people, but as entertainment. And then people like me just, uh, you know, gravitate toward the, a, a wrong fact. <laughs> Does it make your job more difficult as a professor? It's a double-edged sword is how I answer it, because I, I generally think anything that gets people interested in history is good. It, it, I mean, it, I'll condition that a little bit, but it's good because, you know, I, I, I of course, I, I see this from a little bit of a different perspective. Um, I've, I've watched, for example, since 2008, the number of undergraduate history majors in American universities has declined precipitously. And in some places, upwards of two thirds of history majors have kind of uh, gone to other fields. And, and, and there's a number of reasons for that. And, and so it's starting to come back a little bit for, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but for me, it's like anything that kind of pulls people into an interest in the past, even if it's fiction, even if there's some conspiracy theories, um, ancient aliens, we might have to push this. Maybe that's where I'll stop. You know, there's a line there. Um, but I think it's generally good. And, and then what, what it does, it does open the, the conversations of like, especially in historical fiction, right? Like, yeah, this is wrong. Um, why is it wrong? And, and what does that tell us about the decisions that authors are making and why they might choose, you know, to, to write as, about that in, in a way that was not true versus other parts. Like I think about something like the Outlander series. I'm not sure if you're, if you're familiar with it. Um, it does a really, it does a really good job of, of capturing this moment in Scottish history that you know, around the, 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 the Jacobite rebellions in 1745. 
Um, but a lot of the smaller details are actually fictionalized and really problematic in that way. Um, and so if it's capturing a moment in a good way, then you can open up the space to talk about, well, okay, it captures the, 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 the moment. So well, what, what's up with all these wrong factual details? And so I, I think it does create a space to have a conversation um, in, in general. So I, I, I do think there's drawing some lines. Yeah, but, but I generally think it's not, uh, it's, it proposes some difficulties, but it's ultimately a good thing. And and too many people, and my I include myself in this completely, uh, will avoid disclaimers like you know about this is based on history and stuff like that. That goes right over our heads, especially when it's entertainment, film wise, and that kind of stuff can be really confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, where where I want to go here now is um, back to the story. Now motive and this kind of stuff, and we got three guys involved. In criminal justice today, a lot of times I'm baffled when I look at, boy, did they really think that they could get away with this? Mm -hmm. And now the question is, I'm thinking of mercenary type sailors, sailors for hire. They're not not killers for hire, but sailors for hire uh, were probably not men of expected to get wealthy pretty quickly. And so... uh, if they're going to pull this off and get wealthy pretty quickly, are they going to be above suspicion? I mean, did they really think they could get away with this is, is the I, uh, question I'm trying to struggle to get to. <laughs> it, it's not well thought out is what would be my short answer. So one of the, the fascinating things I actually learned this about, and of course I'm, I, I, my, uh, most of my history writing before this has been terrestrial, right? It's very much land bound. So now I'm writing a story that's really, uh, you know, one of the main points and places it takes place settings is, is the sea. And so I had to learn a lot about sailing in this time period. And, you know, these are these men, the three men are called able seamen, right? They have year, they have together decades of sailing experience, um, which is one of the reasons they're hired. Um, but what's so fascinating for men who've spent decades of their lives at sea is they don't know how to pilot and navigate a ship. They know how to work the sails. They know how to, you know, work the bilges. They know how to make a ship function and go day to day. But in terms of navigation, in terms of piloting, they are out of their their depth, uh, pun intended. Um, and the uh, and so this this poses a problem if they're going to mutiny. The the very basic problem is if they take over the ship, they still need someone alive who can pilot and navigate that ship. And so it's interesting when you see who do they kill, who don't they kill? Well, they they murder the captain. They murder the supercar, the merchant on board who's in charge of the cargo, uh, that George Ledane guy. They murder the captain's cabin boy, uh, and they murder the, the the merchant's clerk. Right, so the the two the two on the ship are closest to the merchant and, and, and captain, also also die. They leave the the ship's mate, who is in charge of navigation and piloting, alive, and they leave the ship's bosun, uh, who is in charge of the sails and the kind of equipment on board the ship. They leave him alive. Um, because they need that expertise, which despite decades of sailing experience, they don't have. So that was the, the first mistake, right? So two men who are going to reliably be very angry about what's transpired the ship are left alive uh, because they have to be left alive. Um, they also, they don't speak Dutch. They, and, and all the colonies in that region speak Dutch. So they, they need a Dutch speaker and the Bosman's also a Dutch speaker. The other thing is um, they, they want to go to um, the colony of Orinoco, which is in what's today Eastern Venezuela. Um, the Orinoco River Valley. Their their goal, and I don't know why. I kind of once again speculate why they want to go there. Um, it's uh, I think it's because that that colony um, has a policy of welcoming runaway sailors, runaway soldiers, runaway slaves. Um, if they pledge their loyalty to the Spanish crown, uh, who's the, the imperial uh, master there, or control, um, they will get in the, their Catholic, which they already are. They get sanctuary. So I think they, they've heard these stories probably being told in taverns and on board ships and, and about Spanish policy towards runaways. Um, and so their, their goal is to take this ship there and sell its cargo. But they, it's also very apparent that they know very little about Orinoco because, um, of course, the, the, one of the main products in the hold of the ship that they're going to try to sell is cacao or chocolate. Um, and what does Venezuela produce the most of? Chocolate. So they're not going to arrive to a particularly good market, right? So, so it, I, I don't think I, I don't think it's particularly well thought out. Um, no, it there's, there's sound. also some gold. <laughs> yeah, there's some. I, I, I think there's some ways like you can see how it's so enticing. There's a bunch of 
uh, gold and silver on board the ship. And I, just, I, I try to wrap my mind around why that's the case. There's some, some potential reasons for that. Um, and so I, I think they, and there's some uh, left, uh, what are called remainders, there's living African captives on board still, um, who could also come to probably be sold for quite a bit of money. Um, and so I think there's enough kind of enticing uh, the idea is that they, they there's some wealth there that they could they could get once they get to Orinoco they could perhaps find safe haven because of that but no it's not particularly well thought out it seems to be like a kind of in the heat of the moment uh, yeah plan. I'm going to steal an oil tanker and bring it to Saudi Arabia to see if I could sell it uh, <laughs> exactly <yeah. laughs> um, so there were slaves on board though mm-hmm. uh, how many yeah so they. Uh, so I know how many were on. So I so when the ship goes from Barbados to Suriname, the initial voyage, we I don't know. I, there's probably about fifty or sixty captives total on board. When the ship left, uh, there are fifteen, uh, which we have, and they are in an inventory. That's how we I, I know the exact number. Um, of the fifteen, thirteen are children. Um, the 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 Dutch word that's used to describe them are kind of adolescents, probably uh, ten to thirteen years age of age, um, and then two young adult men. Um, probably eighteen to, to twenty-two or so. Um, would they uh, enter into the fight at all, or no? They were in chains, or I mean, there, there's no way though they could have been involved in the struggle at all, right? No, this is the. I, there's no record of them being involved in that struggle. Um, they would have been there. Um, they they would they have been chained? That's that's a question I try to. I probably not. Um, but they would have been just terrified by what was happening right so the one of the talk about you know the visceral descriptions we get the 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 merchant's clerk uh is just he's he's cut all up um and he crawls into the hold of the ship and so they would have seen this man crawling bleeding out into the hold of the ship um as he's trying to save his life um so they don't really enter the fight at all um this this uh seems to suggest uh, you know as i said these 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 men uh, the three mutineers had probably been recruited because they're experienced in the slave trade and, and so there's probably a pretty clear message, especially you're talking about children, right? That these are men not to be crossed um, and don't interfere in what they're doing. Um, and, and despite the fact, you know, that two of these mutineers are of African descent, there was no kind of um, solidarity there. They, they wow. were they were product to the mutineers. They were as much a product to be sold as they were to the, the captain and the merchant. Right. And, and as product, though, and what, oh, the reason I asked, because it seemed like every time, like, real traditional war, uh, uh, oh, traditional war again, I'm just saying stupid things here today, uh, but um, war where slavery is part of the slaves were enlisted either to be used as shields in some manner or enlisted in battles constantly. But I guess uh, these guys weren't the brightest uh, of criminals and didn't didn't see any use of that. But as product goes now, slaves were product at the time. And I know when criminals get involved in stuff, not only are they stealing from the source, but they're keeping stuff hidden from each other and 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 skimming off uh, some of the stolen goods. Did any of uh, in at this time, and not necessarily in this case, but was it common for stuff like this to happen, where uh, slaves became pilfered by slave by people aboard ships and and resold and lost, and and, and people not able to uh, trace their roots in any way from from that kind of trade. Oh yeah, there's no evidence of this trap, but that is like the the. It, I mean, you. It is a horribly corrupt industry. I mean, even the legal slave trade is just a is a horribly corrupt industry. So one of the things that happens um, is that um, one way to entice you know captains and crews to participate in the slave trade, whether transatlantic or inter-American, is or really any sort of trade. One way to so you don't have to pay a captain as much is you give them X amount of space in the cargo hold of a ship. Um, it's called their private venture. Um, that way, they, they don't pay freight fees on it. So it's essentially, you know, free, uh, free freight. And, and that's one of the, you know, benefits of being a captain of the ship of taking the job. So one of the notorious things that happens in the trade, in the slave trade, is that, let's say, uh, the captain purchases three or four enslaved people for his private venture. Um, and then has, and then the rest of the cargo is of, of other enslaved people. If one of his, the, the enslaved people that he bought sickens and dies or is really ill, uh, he might just do a little paperwork to switch out, you know, one of the healthy captives 
from the main cargo into his and the other one out to, uh, you know, to, to paper over that a little bit. That's incredibly common um, in the trade is that that sort of very kind of low level corruption that undercuts um, and certainly for the captain, right? It helps his paycheck. It helps his profitability, but it undercuts the entire the profitability of the entire industry as a whole. Um, but it's that 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 line, like low level corruption is endemic in, in the slave trade, and and you can see, you see there's all sorts of endemic corruption in this smuggling ring as well, which is one of the reasons why it ultimately falls apart, and not just related wow. to slavery, but really everywhere. It's bizarre to think about these times, and it's and really uh, to understand that it's not re- as long as ago as it was. It's not really that long ago in the history of humanity, and to just to think of the mindset of people and the uh, morals and ethics and uh, of people who, you know, we we know that slave slavery is immoral and bad, but it doesn't get real until you like look at it like in this kind of context because we talk about it all the time in terms of modern race relations but we never look at the reality of people locked in the bottom of a ship being brought brought across as property and all this kind of stuff and then uh contraband within the the role of criminals it's just bizarre to have have that Mm -hmm. lens kind of brought into sharper focus and it's kind of I got to tell you, it makes me feel a little dirty as a human being to be uh, be part of this um, experiment in, in humanity. I guess. Um, yeah. How did they I get? Mean, how did they get? How did they get caught? What blew the lid off this whole thing? What blew the lid off? Of it? Okay. Um, I I do want to say just real briefly to that point you made. Uh, but I'll, I'll answer the question: Is that you know one of the hard things about writing this book is that many of the men who are the head of the smuggling ring who are engaged in these activities getting. Clark, Newark, Jackson, George Ladane, they're upstanding men of their communities. These are men of standing. These are men who are respected. And so the, and everyone knows what they're doing, where their wealth comes from. And yet they're st- and that kind of tells you that that is the, the the really terrifying thing about this time period to me is that just how normalized that practice was. It was, it was everywhere in society. And from you know, everyone kind of just accepted that slavery was normal. You walk the streets, you see enslaved people, enslaved people for sale here, there, and everywhere. And so that that is, it is it's a really hard. And then the, the people who engage in these really nefarious activities are then a men of standing and, and, and respected in their communities. It's really a hard thing to wrap your mind around. Um, but to, to answer uh, your question, how this all comes to an end, um, the it comes back to that tension between the mate and the bosun and the mutineers. Uh, that the, it's very clear that the mutineers don't want these two men alive. Uh, they're both wounded in the, in the course of the mutiny, but they're left alive for their skills. Um, but be, because the, the mutineers had no sense of where they were or how to get to Orinoco, uh, they're essentially duped by the, the bosun and the mate who have, uh, the bosun especially has years of experience sailing in this area. And um, so the idea was they, they know the mutineers want to go to Orinoco, which is this giant river. And so the thing is, though, that this region from the, what's called the Guianas, which is French Guiana, Suriname, the modern day nation state of Guyana and eastern Venezuela, the Guianas, um, there's dozens of these rivers that open up with these huge. And so what they do is essentially the, the Boston and the mate realize that they're not going to know the difference between the Orinoco and any one of these other rivers, but they do. And so the, the bosun takes them up the, a river called the Quarantine. And the Quarantine River is the modern-day border between Guyana and Suriname. And um, they sail up there, and there's a Dutch outpost. Um, and the Dutch, um, the Dutch man who lives there, the, he's a military officer, um, assembles a group. Once he, they, they stop, the, the bosun who speaks Dutch explains the situation. Um, it's all kind of underhanded. I detail in the book. Um, and the man who, the officer who lived there, um, his main job was conducting diplomacy with uh, the Native American people that lived in the area. Um, the, the, they called them Amerindians in, in, in this, this area, uh, is the kind of term for them. And the, he recruits about 50 or so Amerindian allies to go hunt down, the to stop the rising sun and to capture the mutineers. Um, and so that's what kind of puts a stop to the, to the mutineers. That's it's very interesting story. It sounds like uh, gang, that, that part of the story is wild. Like it gets really crazy as it comes to an end. The gang that couldn't shoot straight. I mean, uh, everything wrong. But when you're saying this, and again, I'm not trying to open up any or reopen any conspiracy theories here. But you talk about operating a ship 
and, and how you need to leave a, a couple of guys who knew what had some skills in, in sailing alive. And uh, my mind flashes forward to the questions I had immediately as the first building was burning in 2001. Uh, I thought, well, how could they anybody operate as a, a aircraft carrier without like real solid skills and real experience doing it. And they have to leave some crew. These were the thoughts in my mind, but a ship uh, and not knowing East from West and all that. I mean, all you have to do is go to sleep. When you wake up, you'll see the sun. You can definitely know which way is East. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and then yeah. what, what, so I'm thinking that can't be that difficult to kind of steer a ship in, in the right direction, at least. Um, but it, it's just, mind-blowing <laughs> yeah it's, it's also knowledge of the currents right and so like so there's this very powerful ocean current that, that goes across the northern coast of south america called the south equatorial current and it runs from west africa up the coast of south america and honestly if, if they had any knowledge of the geography of the region it would have been very easy to sail the rising sun north into that current and then sail out right at the orinoco river it should have been a very short sail with the rising sun, so what the mate and the bosun do is they take it down along the coast. So it just kind of lumbers along for days um, along the coast. Um, and they and they eventually go to this other river, telling them that it's the Orinoco. Um, yeah, it is. It is. How did they not know this? How? Uh, but these are you know these are fairly sophisticated machines. They have to uh, the sails operate in a certain way, and if you if you don't. You might know how to tie sails or unfurl sails, but do you know how to turn a sail in a way that you can sail against the current or, or the wind? That's the knowledge for the bosun or the or the mate. Well, again, it it sounds like um, very inept uh, organized crime. What we're talking about <laughs> is if you were going to plan this, and now I think it's safe that nobody's going to to smuggle another ship like this, so I can put this out there. But if this was your plan, the plan would be to educate yourself on how to sail the vessel before mm. you commit that crime. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> that to me speaks uh, to the, what is the, ra- like how rash and, and how quickly this was kind of planned out. What was the, and I know we're running out of time here, and uh, but just the sense of what this kind of business and smuggling in general at the time meant to the people at the time and in the uh, population, even people who were not involved in it, were they affected by the, because it seemed like this was rampant business going on, right? This whole mm-hmm. smuggling stuff. And so what was the effect on society at the time? Was it a positive effect, negative effect? Keep prices down, right? right? Yeah, absolutely. This is the thing. Like, as I mentioned, everybody's participating in this. And so if you have your option, right, if you think about something that that people consumed in the 18th century, like chocolate or like tea, um, if you're a consumer, you know, housewife living in Boston trying to get some tea or chocolate for your family, um, the smuggled stuff's going to be a lot cheaper, right? It's And so you you go with the smuggled stuff. If, If you're a distiller and you're looking, you know, you're manufacturing rum, uh, distilling rum, you're going to go with the smuggled molasses that's significantly cheaper than what's coming from the, the British West Indies that's been taxed, that's been marked. The stuff from the French and, and Dutch West Indies that's smuggled in, it's so much cheaper. Um, even even sometimes if they do claim it, and they have to pay a small tax on it. So the, the effect is uh, essentially a world where everybody is involved in smuggling in one way or the other, as, as buyers, as sellers, um, as, as shippers. Um, and, and the thing that really, the, for the, the, the book that really came out of me is that sometimes someone's involvement in smuggling was being contraband, right? Like the enslaved people on board the Rising Sun, they were contraband. So it's really hard to live in this 18th century world, to live in the, in the, in the kind of around the Atlantic in the 18th century and not somehow be involved and touch this world of smuggling. It, it, it's, it's impossible. Right. It's, and, and, you know, like there are analogies to, um, the war on drugs where the consumer is 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 somehow responsible for perpetuating the cartel's business and and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff so there there is that part part of society was reliant on this illegal trade to keep things reasonable prices and all that stuff and uh, i imagine they were skirting taxes in some in a lot of way instances too right oh yeah absolutely taxes across the board whether tariff import tariffs or um, you know, consumers all sorts of like sales taxes. Yeah, that's that's the other. That's one of the other reasons it's so much cheaper is that they're that's not taxed. Wow, an hour an hour is flown by talking about this stuff, and I I got to read the book. How how um 
how heavy a read is the book? This, and this is something I have to ask now because of uh, people's shorter attention spans. I know there's an audio version out for people who mm-hmm. are intimidated by reading, <laughs> but uh, how, how deep a read is the book? It's I, I, I when I wrote it, I made it for a, a kind of wrote it with a general audience in mind. Um, so it's I think it's it, it's total like 280 pages, but a, a bunch of that is appendices and footnotes. And so I, I think I'll told the 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 actual length of the book yeah. about 65 60,000 words or so. It's about 175 pages. Um, and uh, short paragraphs. Yeah. No. Yeah, no. yeah. And there is the audiobook version. So yeah. Uh, did you did you uh, narrate the audio yourself, or did you uh, hire a, a did you hire Morgan Freeman? I, oh, I wish. Um, no, I did not <laughs> narrate myself. It was, it was uh, you know the way these things work. A firm bought it, and they had a they had a voice actor do the do the reading. All I right, need to good. listen to it actually. I want to hear it. We do us. we do have a link to your publisher, and that, this is not in the description yet. It will be quickly as soon as the show is over. I will put this link in the description. There's a link to where you can buy it on Amazon right now, but I will swap it out for uh this one um and and so the finally i guess as we close up what was the most rewarding what was in it for you that your takeaway from this book what what uh is your greatest um reward for for creating this work um you know that's a, that's a really loaded question of it's a way like I, I got a lot of benefit from it um Though there, there's kind of two things. The first is kind of why I wrote this book for a more general public, which is I really wanted to, to, to illustrate, you know, that there is a, a human hot side of smuggling, right? That there is all of these people involved in a number of different ways. It, it's ubiquitous and, it, 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 and it, that, that intersects with, with slavery, which was so also so normal and, and everywhere in the 18th century. So to really kind of, this story allows me to kind of look at that intersection there. Um, it also for the Old North Church, who I worked so closely with doing this research um, and, and, and writing the book for, for that, um, it really has helped them kind of come to terms with their own history and examine their own, their own history uh, in relationship to smuggling and slavery and things like that. So that's also been very rewarding. Wow. Uh, well, listen, I appreciate you um, bringing this education. I look forward to reading the book. I hope my uh, my audience will uh, at least check out the book, turn off the History Channel for a day, and get yourself into some real history. Uh, but I want to put this out there for you because I know you, you know you are a uh, continuing to write and and produce stuff. And wh- whether you have a new book or not, if you because you mentioned the hit, interest in history seemed to be waning. If you ever are so inclined to come back here and just uh, talk about history uh, in general, or if you have other books that you you know as you move along in your career and you you want to uh, publicize them, please come back here. But for you know in general, just to have a history discussion to try and keep up the interest in the subject in general, <laughs> I would appreciate that and and uh, extend an invitation to any time you want to come back and talk history with me. Or you're more than welcome to. I appreciate your time here. Wish you great success with the book. And so, thank you. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That sounds that sounds wonderful. Actually, I'd love to do that. And and thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed my, it. My pleasure. And I, you know, I, I'm saddened to hear that interest in history because I think it's really important. I mean, uh, the cliche mm-hmm. the cl- cliche couldn't be any more true about uh, those who uh, fail to learn from history. And so, uh, I think it's really important to keep it alive. And so, I, I respect mm-hmm. you and thank you for coming here mm-hmm. and sharing this with my audience. And please. Uh, until we meet again, uh, be well. Bye for now. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. Bye. Wow. Uh, interesting stuff. Jared Ross Hardesty, uh, and the book is uh, Mutiny on the Rising Sun, not the House of the Rising Sun. I didn't even ask him if there's any connection to the uh, story of the House of the Rising Sun in New Orleans because New Orleans was a hub of the slave trade here. Uh, it's, it's trivial stuff, but... Uh, yeah, I'm sure people are going to see the title of the book and have that in the back of the man. House of the, a Mutiny on the Rising Sun, House of the Rising Sun. There's got to be some kind of connection there. Meaningless and all this. Great story, though. And, um, man, uh, it hurts sometimes to put this stuff into focus. It hurts to, to kind of realize we're not that far removed from this time. And it sounds like just a den of thieves, like the whole... I'm laughing. I I laugh because it's better. It's easy to laugh than cry. But it sounds like all of humanity was so corrupt at that time. 
really hard to take. Anyway, I'd love to hear your questions and comments on the program. Write to me, info at minddogtv.com, info at minddogtv.com. Tonight, John Giordano will be with me, and he's got too many degrees for me to mention. None of them are MD, but PhDs upon or, or lots of degrees that I, I don't even know what they mean. We're going to be talking about addiction and how to beat addiction. Uh, so it should be a really interesting program. I uh, hope you'll join me then, 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, or if you miss me tonight, there's always Coffee with the Dog, 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, so we'll, we'll see you then. Till then, I'm Matt Apple for the Mind of TV Podcast. Thanks for coming. Have a great rest of your day. Bye for now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.